It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Drops the throw, steps up, floats a bomb up the right seam, looking for Anderson. He's got it. They're not going to catch him. He's going to go the distance. Touchdown. Sam Darnold dials it up to Robbie Anderson. 92 yards. Bell into the middle of that line, and it's a touchdown. Big return for Crowder, 85 yards. Pass thrown, there was contact with the quarterback, and it's incomplete. They got pressure on Prescott. It was Adams who came blitzing in. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know that's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the TOJ Digital Studios, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And it's time for Off the Edge with Jamal Westerman, who is a member of a Grey Cup finalist team. Unfortunately, they did not win the championship. But Jamal, I want you to tell me about it. You were on the sidelines. What was the experience like? Honestly, the the week... And how you doing, Scott? Appreciate you having me. I know I couldn't get on last week because I was up in beautiful Calgary, Alberta. <laughs> but the, the week was great, man. I mean, to be a part of, you know, the Great Cup, I've never was a part of a Super, super Bowl, you know, team or finalist or anything like that. So to be a part of the week and the pageantry of the CFL. And, you know, the thing that I always find different about the CFL as it relates to the NFL, when it comes to the games and the different you know, super, you know, Grey Cup week or they have a CFL week in the offseason to kind of kickstart free agency. The one thing I always noticed is every team is represented in, in the fans, in the crowd, in the stadium. So looking up in the stadium where both teams were technically away teams, even though it was played in the West, closer to Winnipeg, man, you saw every jersey up there, a lot of, you know, people. And I'm like, you know, why'd you come out? Why'd you come all the way from BC to this game? Why'd you come all the way to Montreal? Alberta to watch the great cup when your team is not in it and a lot of the people say man we love football we love the pageantry of football we like getting together because this is the culmination of the season so I mean it was a great you know it was a good week I mean I got got to go a couple events since I didn't play you know the fans were amazing the pageantry of the league was great and you know the game was it it, it definitely was a, a tough game because we didn't come out and play how I or how we expected to play you know we kind of we didn't come out and play as a physical team, and that's what we're known for in Hamilton and our defense and our offense, and I think they played a little bit more physical than we did. And, you know, Winnipeg, hats off to them. Congratulations to those guys. I know a couple of guys on the team, staff, people in the organization, and, you know, people in the city. So congrats to them. And, you know, in Hamilton, man, I, it definitely was tough. I mean, a lot of great memories. I mean, I think this is definitely going to be something that sticks with, you know, the players and the staff for a long time. But I think this is going to be something that has always turned into a positive where – it won't happen again. Again, you know, teams won't get caught flat again in, in the biggest of games. I would imagine that this has got to be one of the most fun experiences that you've had as a professional football player, but still not quite as great as sacking Tom Brady not once, <laughs> but twice in a single game back in 2011. <laughs> I didn't need you. I, I, I'm, I think I'm gonna have you write my obituary. We're gonna get it down. We come with the first. <laughs> I mean, by then, I mean, Tom Brady will still be living. He'll probably still be playing in the NFL, drinking avocado smoothies and stuff. But we're going to put that up there on the obituary. Here lies the man who got Brady twice in one game. I'm not going to lie to you, Jamal. If I was you and I was putting together a resume, that would be right at the top of the resume. 
See, I like, I, like, I like to introduce it later in the meeting, right? So you don't say, oh, you better get the patient. Yeah, I was brave. I got him a couple times, you know, you know, two, three times in a year, whatever. So you got to slide it in there to the meeting. You don't want to just put it there because it kind of desensitizes it. I think for Thanksgiving, I sent you a picture of you sacking Tom Brady, which I found online. So I thought that was pretty funny. How was your Thanksgiving, by the way? Oh, man, it was fantastic, man. Came back from um, Hamilton, so I was a little bit, you know, I'm not going to lie to you, a little bit depressed, a little bit down. Got to go to one of my buddies, a former uh, Rutgers football great, played at the Baltimore Ravens as a pro bowler, Jeremy Zuta. Got to go over to his house. You know, we've been doing Thanksgiving together for the last couple of years. Got to hang out with his family. His brother was in town, AJ, a player that uh, played at Dartmouth. You know, a lot of, my, you know, my wife, my children was there, his mom, his dad, his wife. So it was a great time. Two turkeys, had a fried turkey, had a cooked turkey. You know, they're, they're, they're from Ghana. You know, their family's from Ghana. So a lot of great food, a lot of cooking. And, I mean, it was a good time to kind of sit back and watch some NFL football also. Last thing I want to talk about before we get to the Jets, Jamal. Big news with your alma mater, Rutgers. Bringing bum, back bum, bum. the Shiano man, Greg Shiano. He is coming back to Rutgers to help rescue the program. When he left, they were in the best shape they'd ever been in. They tumbled since he left, and now he's coming back to ride in on his white horse. You must be super excited. I definitely, I think I'm more excited for the players, which is crazy, than than anything because just to have that opportunity, you know, to be coached by him, you know, for, you know, five years of my college football career and just kind of keep in touch with him and, you know, growing close to him over the years as he was in the NFL and I was in the NFL and I transitioned to CFL and he transitioned back into college football. I'm excited for the players because the one thing that, you know, what we heard about Greg Shannon, attention to detail, hardest working guy in the room, you know, willing to develop, you know, not only, you know, the staff members around him, but the players. And as a player and as a player that played for him, the one thing I always knew that you, you, he was going to get your all out of you. He was going to get every bit, every morsel of energy, of sacrifice, of attention to detail out of you. And it was going to make you not only a better athlete and a better player on the field, but a lot of his messages, a lot of his, you know, core values, I hold with me to them. I think it, it kind of, you know, with me adding different things over, over, you know, the last 11 years, I think it, those are the, some of the things that, you know, that I hold dear to me and it helps me kind of navigate life, navigate work, different teams, family, you know, children, you know, spouses. So I'm excited for the players. I'm excited for the university. And, you know, he's coming back to do it the right way. And that's the one thing that you know about Cosciano and, and every place he's been. He's always fought to do it the right way and build it on a strong, sturdy foundation. And, you know, if you just look at the things that he's been asking for and the, and the different, you know, the different items, and it's all about the university. It's all about just find a way to do, do it the right way and build it and be successful. So I'm excited for the guys. Uh, press conference is, is, is on a Wednesday. Definitely going to be there to support it. I, I mean, I think it's, it's a great time in Rutgers moving forward, and I think greatness is in, you know, is, is in the future. If you see Ray Lucas at the press conference, tell him to come on the show at some point. <laughs> yeah, I, I know Ray will be there. Ray, Ray hasn't been on the show yet. I can get Ray on the show. Got to have Ray on to talk Ray about on 1999. You can't talk about 1999 without Ray. Without Ray. And he's a Rutgers guy. Jet. I mean, we kind of follow the same path. Rutgers, Jets, Miami. We were moving in the same circles. Yeah, so definitely we've got to get Ray on there. But, I mean, I think everybody at university is excited. I was, New Jersey is a great football state. We just look at the talent that always comes out of the state. And, you know, they've gone to different schools. But, you know, I think having Shiano back around a, a person that 
some of these kids, you know, heard about growing up and, you know, watched some of the games growing up and the coaching staff and the other great coaches in New Jersey know it's going to be a little bit more, not the, it's not going to be just fluff when it comes to Greg, you know, Coach Gianna. It's not going to be fluff. It's going to be a real relationship, real determination, and really finding the right people and the right, you know, kids, student athletes for the program because that's what it's about, and especially in football and really any organization. It's the right people, and then you make them fit where they have to fit, but you have to have the right people that's, you know, determined, willing to sacrifice, you know, trust, belief, accountability, all the things that he stands for. So definitely an exciting time in uh, Rutgers football and in the university's future. Hopefully Joe Douglas can do as good of a job recruiting in the offseason for the Jets as Greg Schiano used to do for Rutgers and as hopefully he will do in the future for Rutgers too. Joe Douglas has his work cut out for him though, Jamal, especially on the offensive line. Let's talk about that. The offensive line looked okay against the Raiders, good enough for Sam Darnold to be able to do what he needed to do. The offensive line was terrible against the Cincinnati Bengals. What did you see in those two games? What was the contrast there? It seemed like they were getting up to the second level against the Raiders. You know, they were blocking the initial D line, and then the offensive line were able to work up to the second level. But the Raiders didn't have the, the accomplished defensive linemen, you know, as the Bengals had. General At- Atkins up the middle, you know, Dunlap on the outside. And I think the offensive line, they were not able to sustain their blocks. They were not able to play clean football, pen- penalty-free football. And if you ask them to a man, you know, all the offensive linemen, I don't think they're happy with the way they play it. I don't think they find this as a successful game for themselves because penalties, sacks, getting hits on a quarterback and not sustaining the run game. And as offensive linemen, all the offensive linemen I know have a lot of pride in keeping their quarterback clean, and they weren't able to do that this game. Jamal, you've had a lot of coaches over the years, so I thought you'd be an interesting person to ask about this. I talked to you about this before we started recording And the analogy that I used was when Bernard Hopkins fought Felix Trinidad, he knew to stay away from Felix Trinidad's left hook. In this case with the Bengals, what everybody knew was run on the Bengals, run it early, run it off, and specifically run it to the outside. Adam Gase seemed to do the opposite, and it felt to a lot of people like he was trying to prove that he was smarter, like he didn't have to do the obvious thing. Have you had coaches that have done that and you've had players on the sideline or in the locker room after the game scratching their head going, why didn't we just exploit their weakness? What was the coach trying to do here? I, I have. I've, I've been a part of uh, teams where you're like, man, you sure want to blitz this guy. Let's just rush four against them and, you know, he'll throw it up and let's just attack him instead of taking a guy out of coverage, you know, to blitz them and get him on the move. But in the run game, I'm not going to lie. I thought they were going to come out this week and Adam Gates were going to call a couple more run plays to kind of, get Le'Veon going to get the offensive line more comfortable because every offensive line I've ever talked to, they always are more comfortable in running the ball, moving forward. When you can be more physical, it's not as much of a technique. It is technique, but it's more of the physical nature and your, your combo blocking up to the Mike linebacker, your guys getting off, you're stealing, you're pinning the guy down and you're pulling an offensive lineman. And so the, Adam Gates didn't run on the edge. Was it because, you had Beecham was back for the first game. You had uh, Shell that didn't play a great game, you know, so how was he looking in practice? Was that the reason that they didn't feel that they could sustain their block on the outside and they were more able to run Le'Veon up the middle, have him pick his way through or, you know, kind of bust open a hole with Blau and let him just come downhill? So that's the question I have to ask because I, I, I believe that they were going to attack the outside 
run the ball a little bit to protect Sam. And, and that wasn't the case, especially in that first half of the game, because they only ran, I believe, seven or nine times in the first half. All week in the media, you've seen Adam Gates talk about we have to forget, protect against Carlos Dunlap. They didn't want this to be a game that Carlos Dunlap can go off. I mean, and as you saw, he did it with three sacks. So maybe that's one of the reasons that they weren't as readily available to run outside towards him to kind of put the ball on the edge because they do have playmakers as, as a defensive end and somebody that's played that position, that's played on the edge. If you can make plays in the backfield, and especially Le'Veon Bell where he's the pick, he picks his poison as he runs the ball. If you can make a play on, you know, in the backfield when he's outside on a toss or something like that, and you can make a TFL play, that just gets your juices flowing and allows you to say, okay, I've made a play. I'm making plays out here, and you kind of step your level up a little bit. So that may be one of the reasons why Adam Gates wasn't as readily, you know, didn't really want to put the ball out there where Carlos Dunlap, we knew he was waiting in. He still had a tremendous game, but, you know, not as much in the run game. It's so weird to me that a coach could have such a great game plan one week against the Raiders and such a terrible game plan the week after against the Bengals. How does that happen? You know what? To be, let, 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 let's call a spade a spade. In the first series, I think Donald looked great. Started out five wide, threw a pass to Le'Veon Bell across the middle. He dropped it. First series, Robbie, Robbie Anderson dropped the touchdown pass. Now, it wasn't a perfect throw, but Rob, Robbie's a great player. I mean, he's a good player in the NFL. He's a player that you expect to make that pass. You had another drop. You had three drops in the first series of the game. So that first drive is what we always talk about. It's a scripted drive from Adam Gates. He's been running these plays all week with Sam Darnold. The first, you know, 15, 10 to 15 players are normally scripted. These are the plays that Sam Darnold knows at the back of his hand. Okay, this is my first read. This is my second read. This is my check now. It looked like he was taking the shots and he was supposed to take them, even though he didn't hit on some of them. But when you, with three drop balls during that first series, all the scripting and all the, you know, what we saw last week, all that kind of went to the wayside. Where now it was like, all right, we're behind the sticks. We're trying to make it. Now I have to take a shot. I have to force the ball. So we can sit and talk about the run game if they ran inside or if they ran outside. But to be honest, from looking at it as a player, as a former player, I saw a lot of drop passes, especially earlier in the game. And a lot of offensive linemen just losing that one-on-one battle. The receivers seem to be getting open a lot more against the Raiders than they were against the Cincinnati Bengals. Is that a function of the opposing team's secondary, or was there just a better game plan by the Bengals? What did you see here in terms of comparing and contrasting what we saw from the wide receivers in those two games? Because the only guy that seemed to get any separation in this particular game at all was Robbie Anderson. I think, I think it has a lot to do with the pass rush up front. So the ball has to come out a lot faster, right? So you don't have the time to let somebody get down the field or, you know, let a uh, receiver run open. You have to get the ball at your hand because, you know, those boys were coming. With four sacks in the game, you know, the offensive line wasn't holding up. And, I mean, you have two guys on that defensive line with the Bengals, Dunlap and Atkins. I mean, they're both chasing the sack record for the team. So you have two guys, a a tackle and an end, both chasing a sack record for all-time sacks in Bengals history. So you're not ha- you don't have scrubs out there, right? So they're getting to the quarterback, and as a quarterback, you know that they're coming. He feels the pressure, and he's trying to get the ball out of his hands fast, which as a receiver, you don't have as much time to separate, you know, to get open. You don't have that extra second or that extra millisecond just to sell your route a little bit. And you know that, listen, he's looking for me now, and I have to maybe just get open rather than I'm going to sell him, I'm going to stick him to the outside like I normally do and come back in. Maybe you just come in on the dig or you just come in on the crossing route like, hey, just hit me because I know you need help. 
Sam Darnold's stat sheet looked a lot more impressive against the Raiders than the Bengals. But I thought that he played fairly well against the Bengals. He just didn't get a lot of help. You mentioned it before, a lot of drops, a lot of penalties, a lot of poor play from the offensive line. I thought he was not helped at all by the play calling from Adam Gase, especially rolling him out right into Carlos Dunlap, which made no sense to me. When you watched Sam Darnold in those two weeks, did you think there was a drastic difference between that lights-out performance against Oakland and the less impressive performance against the Bengals? Or do you think that if a couple of things had gone his way, that it would have been a pretty similar stat line? They almost got fooled by the Bengals, if you think about it. You know, first the Bengals, you know, Owen, whatever, they're horrible. They bench Dalton for four weeks. They have a backup coming in. The backup comes in, plays horrible. Dalton comes back. What is Dalton? He's been resting for four weeks. He's been hungry for four weeks. Now the offense changes a little bit where Adam Gaze and his staff, you're not exactly sure, are they going to keep running the ball with Nixon than they did the last four weeks, or are they going to let Darnold, you know, I mean, not Darnold, are they going to let Dalton air it out a little bit more? And they decided to let Dalton air it out a little bit more. And I think that kind of threw off the rhythm of the game for Adam Gaze where you were expecting maybe more will be the aggressor, will be the team to, you know, put the ball in the air a little bit more and try to make it happen rather than run the ball, and they did the, they did the same thing to you, and they were able to do it at a higher level, Dalton was. Speaking of Dalton, do you think it was that big of a lift for that Cincinnati team to have Dalton in there? Because I think a lot of us, myself included, looked at this as something that was going to be a real detriment to the Jets because you go from Finley, who's a very green quarterback, to somebody like Dalton who, for all the stuff that people have said about him, has been a very solid starting quarterback for a long period of time in the NFL he looks like he's still got some juice left in him. Now, I know the Bengals hadn't won a game with him as the starter, but from the stuff I had watched, it didn't really look like it was his fault. When you saw that Dalton was going to be in this game, as a player, would that have been something that would have concerned you? Would you have been a lot more nervous to play the Bengals with Dalton at quarterback than you would have been with Finley? You know, he's the red rifle now. So Dalton is not a, a scrub by any means. I don't think it's a nerve thing from a player. I think it's more about the game plan. You know, defensive coordinator Greg Williams, how was he going to confuse, you know, Dalton? You know, he had a couple, you know, younger quarterbacks in the season, part of the three-game win streak. You know, you had some guys you could confuse. And this, this game, Greg Williams, you know, he decided not really to send a ton of pressure at Dalton, you know, kind of you know, maybe blitz, blitz the middle linebacker, but drop the edges to try to create a little bit more coverage, but they weren't able to get to him. So I, I wouldn't have been, you know, surprised. I wouldn't have been nervous with a new quarterback, a starter coming to the game. I think it was more, you know, I focus on the game plan. What's the game plan? You know, you know, coach, I'll be like, Greg Williams, all right, what's the game plan? Are we attacking them? Are we sitting back? Is it more of a four-man rush game or do we want to simulate pressure? And, you know, they weren't able to get to him, which is concerning that they need a player like Jamal Adams to kind of create that spark to getting after the quarterback. You would have expected one of the D linemen or a blitzing linebacker to be able to come off and make some plays, you know, in the pass game on the quarterback, and nobody was able to do it. And, I mean, Dalton kind of sat back there the whole game, was able to pick and choose, you know, what he wanted. So you think that a big part of the reason why Dalton was able to do what he did is merely because the Jets just couldn't get any pressure on him? They couldn't get any pressure. Greg Williams, as you can see, he's trying to protect the corners. Bless played well. Millette, you know, played a decent game. But you also know these are guys that are going to take time to come along. These are guys that, you know, they're going to take more seasoning. They're going into their pro careers. And, I mean, the Bengals don't have any, you know, their receivers and the tight end. C.J. 
CJ, how do you say, Hujanzada? I don't even know how to say that guy's name, to be honest with you, Jamal. I kept trying to figure out how to pronounce it, but I couldn't do it. But I, I know what he can do. He can catch balls. I mean, him <laughs> and Dalton seem to have a natural connection. They were sharp in their connection. Tate, another big receiver, and you can see Dalton was throwing the ball where Tate, where Tate was the only one that could catch it. I mean, he had a uh, a pass over Bless, which was a, a good throw that was high, and that big receiver can go up and make the catch, and then Boyd, you know, balled out last year without you know without AJ Green late in late in the season, and this year without AJ Green, he seemed to have a decent game, being able to run routes, being able to get open. So, you know, Greg Williams has to protect that secondary a little bit. So maybe that's why he doesn't send as much pressure as he normally would. Here's what I don't understand, though, Jamal: the Raiders have a really good offensive line, and the Bengals don't. Yet the Jets were able to get pressure against the Raiders and not against the Bengals. The only thing I can think of here is that the guy that has been getting the most pressure for the Jets on this defense has been Jamal Adams. And early in this game, he had that ankle sprain, which we heard about after the game he was in a walking boot. Could Jamal Adams have been that X factor that with him in Oakland, just the threat of him on top of the fact that he was obviously going to make some plays was going to make the Raiders have to be a little jittery and it was going to throw everything off. But with him not really being able to do anything, the Bengals were able to have their way in the passing game. Well, you've seen, you've seen Jamal Adams at his best. We've also seen him just healthy, right? We don't always need his best game, but him healthy makes an impact on any football team or any field. But now we've seen him hurt where he didn't have the same mobility. He wasn't as twitchy in the game, wasn't able to move like he normally does. And it hurt him a lot to go out and not be able to play at the level he can play. And so you're, you're missing that X factor who we've seen, especially during the win streak and really the whole season. He's made plays in the passing game. He's made plays in the backfield in the run game. He's sacked the quarterback. He's taken the ball away from the quarterback. And he's really laid some devastating blows on some running back, knocking him out of the way to be able to get to the quarterback. Without that kind of X factor, that piece in the puzzle, that big joker to be able to use by Greg Webb, you see they were a little bit more vanilla. They were a little bit, you know, tentative when it came to pressuring the quarterback more than they had been in weeks past. How do you make up for that going forward? Because Adams is going to miss some time. Who knows? He could miss the rest of the games this season. If you're Greg Williams, what do you do now? What he's been doing the whole year, right? I mean, you've had injuries <laughs> from the from the first game, you know, through now. This guy's going down on defense, middle linebackers, cornerbacks, defensive linemen going down. And Greg Williams, you say what you want, but he's done a good job of plugging, playing, developing his guy, developing the guys that some guys want to practice guys at the beginning of the year, but he's developed them to be able to play professional football and kind of trying to find their strengths. Because when the guy's on the practice squad or a guy's not playing, you know, he's just playing special teams as D coordinator. You're not really sure what are his strengths. You know, is he a great blitzer? Is he a great rusher? And not only in practice, what can he do on game day? Are the lights too big for him? You know, so it takes a while to figure out, all right, this is what he can do. This is what he doesn't do as well, and this is where we think he'll develop to. And so Greg Williams, he's going to have to plug and play. He's next man up in the NFL, next man's going to have to come up, and he's going to find a way to be creative in his defense this week in Miami.
Jamal, do you think that in terms of getting pressure now that Adams is not going to be in there, is it time to finally unleash Quentin Williams? Because a lot of what he's been asked to do, in fact, the majority of it has been to stunt and to two-gap. In fact, there were a couple of plays that I noticed he literally ran right into two or three guys, so it was very obvious what he was doing. Is it time for Greg Williams to just say, I know I've got subpar linebackers back there, and I know we need to stop the run? But I don't have Jamal Adams here, and I don't have an elite edge rusher. I've got to unleash this kid. He's my best chance to get to the quarterback. You can't do it like that in the National Football League. Because say, okay, Quentin Williams, you know, comes up the middle. You know, Greg, hey, do what you want, Q. Go make plays, fly around, get to the quarterback. All right, Q comes out with a sack and a half. Great game, Q. But they give up 150 yards in the run game. That's not a game you want to do against the Miami Dolphins. Because on either end, what are you going to hear? It's a loss for the Jets and a win for Miami. So I think you have to keep developing, developing slowly in your system. You know, it's not only about let's get Quinn in a, a sack and a half. Let's get Quinn in into the Pro Bowl. Let's get Q, you know, getting sacks as a rookie. It's about the whole front developing, you know, trying to win together and building the right type of culture. You know, if you want to just get sacks or you want to just be, you know, let's just have players that we can talk about, well, then you build a culture that, that if guys are getting sacks, it's a great day. The guys aren't getting sacked. It's a horrible day. Everybody's pissed off around the team. But if you want to build a strong culture on winning, on doing your job, on when your time comes making the play, I think they've been approaching it pretty good. But, if, I mean, we know he has the talent. We've seen him play at Alabama. We've seen him knock guys over, beat double teams, run down screens. We've even seen it in the NFL that he's a player that, he, you know, chasing the ball. You know, he can, he can make plays. He can get skinny in the hole and get back big on a quarterback. He just has to learn how to play more consistent in the scheme. He has to understand and learn and develop his NFL repertoire when it comes to pass rush, when it comes to play action pass rush. Because, you know, you're getting – you see sometimes there's a play action where he gets the run read from the guard. He kind of stiff – he kind of stands them up playing the run. Now it's that transition into the arm over into your pass rush. You better get after the quarterback. So I don't think it's a – a thing of let's get Quinn and let's, let's let him wreak havoc. I think just develop him, teach him good, good, good practice habits, good game plan. Just teach him how to play harder for longer. And you've seen at the times where he's playing hard, where he's flying around, he's being more disruptive. You just need to teach him and he has to develop the way to play harder for longer. Because if you try to compare him against every defensive tackle that came out after him, I think you're doing him a disservice because those are different defenses, different schemes, different organizations. He's playing, then they're playing around different D linemen around them. He's in this a unique group at a unique time, so he has to just kind of develop and learn as he goes. Let's talk about the run defense. A lot of people will say that run defense in 2019 NFL doesn't really matter. But the Jets are elite in that category. And I don't just mean elite in this particular season. I mean all-time levels of elite. Later on this week, Michael Nanny is going to join me and we're going to really break down the numbers. But as somebody who's been a professional football player for as long as you have, I was curious for your take on this. How valuable is being able to stop the run like that, just being able to completely neutralize the opposing team's rushing attack? Because I know it's a passing league in the NFL right now, Jamal, but still, to be able to make a team be one-dimensional, there's got to be some value in that, right? You know, I, I believe there's huge value in that because if you think about it, what's the easiest thing to do as a quarterback? Turn around, hand the ball to a running back. You're not really worried too much about a tip pass. You're not worried about an interception. You know, the worst that can happen is the fumble. 
And a pass play can be a tip, it can be a pick, it can be a pick six. The quarterback can get sacked. Many different things can happen. And to be able to stop the run at an elite level like this front seven is doing, including the, the DBs, and you got corners coming up and making tackles too, I think that is very impressive. If you look at the top three teams this year in the NFL, they're all the top three teams, the Raiders, San Francisco, and I believe the Seattle, if I'm not mistaken. They're all one, two, and three in rushing yards, and that's for a reason. If you can't stop the run, you're going to get beat every game. And even in the Jets game, you know, last week against the Bengals with a team that's Owen whatever, the game was still in contention a lot later than you expected it to be. Because why? Because the Bengals weren't able just to line up mixing in the backfield and say, you know what, for the rest of this second half, we're just going to pound the ball, pound the ball, pound the ball, and they'll give it up. You know, and that's because, you know, that front seven, the front eight is, all, is still playing with that physicality. They're still playing with a little bit of nastiness, you know, up front. Because getting the ball ran on you, especially as a defense and especially as a D-line, is probably one of the most demoralizing things that can happen to a football player in the game. Because you're sitting there, you know they're coming at you, and it's really a tough thing to stop. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Let's talk special teams. Brant Boyer is one of the better special teams coaches in the league. This was not a performance by the special teams that he's ever going to be putting on his resume. I can assure you of that. You played for one of the greatest special teams coaches of all time, Mike Westhoff. How would he have been reacting to a special teams performance like what we saw when the Jets took on the Bengals in Cincinnati? Because I can only imagine how angry he would have gotten in the locker room. Oh, Westy? Oh, Westhoff would have probably tried to cut everybody. <laughs> Don't, hey, my man, listen, my man, see that jersey? Take it off. Give it to Gus. Write home and tell your mom, mom, I'll be home for Christmas. That's what Westy would have told us. <laughs> they, they didn't play a, a good game. And I'm a special teams guy, man. I enjoy special teams. I think it could, can 
be a spark on a football team. Too many. I, I, how many penalties do they have on teams? Yes, uh, Sunday. They had a couple penalties. They didn't play well. They didn't fly around. They, they were there was a spark missing on the entire team. I'm not sure it was maybe they went out there that the stands weren't weren't full. Maybe they didn't get the energy from even in the away games you can get that that buzz from the crowd. And they came out and played a flat game, and nobody made made the the, the decision to say, you know what, I'm going to make a play here, or as this puller comes around, I'm going to cut him. I'm going to be physical. And on special teams, you may just say, yeah, he's going down, but I'm going to try to knock this ball loose. When they hold him up, I'm going to try to put my shoulder pad on the football to knock it out. And those are the situations where you see a game where you're, you know, your team's struggling, struggling to get going offensively, kind of holding and kind of just trying to hold hard defensively where you want to see a special team play happen, a, a fake, a physical play to kind of fire up the crowd and, um, you know, James Ahedabo uh, used to do that a lot when, when he played with the Jets. He'll run down a kickoff, and we'll be talking. He'll be like, all right, we got to make a play, man, because we're struggling now. And somebody hold a guy up, and all 11 guys are trying to be on top of him, trying to be a part of that play. And this week, the special teams didn't play well, but they're a better group. And a lot of guys are being called on to play a lot more defense because of injuries and different things that are happening. So they just have to find that, that sweet spot where you're playing some teams, you're playing a little defense, but where's your focus during the game? I want to go back to the offense for a second. Le'Veon Bell looked outright frustrated in the postgame press conference. Now, he did everything he could to say what he needed to say so that the media didn't have a story to write, but you could hear it in his voice. Do you get the sense as somebody who's been in locker rooms and who's observed players like this that he's thinking to himself at this point, why did I sign here? Why did I sit out that year in Pittsburgh? Maybe I should have just stuck around because... It just feels like Adam Gase is not doing anything with him. This offensive line is not tailored to his capabilities. And it's just been a really bad season for him. A lot of it, I don't think, was even his fault. You know, Lev Bell is a, a smart player. I mean, he's a, I mean, one of the best players in, in, in the NFL over his career. And he understand, he understood what was, happened, what was happening when he came to the Jets in the offseason. I mean, he took the contract. He sat out a year. He, he fought for his ability to move around and kind of, you know, take care of his family a little bit better. And he understood what it was. You're coming in with a young quarterback, a new staff that's together for the first time. And even in his transition here, they ended up switching the GM again. And with the injuries, he, he knows what it is this year. And I think he is definitely frustrated because, he is a more productive player than what he's showing, but it's not only him. I mean, he's getting hit in the back through a lot. Even when he's picking his way through plays, he's having to make a lot, lot more guys miss than he had to do at Pittsburgh. And that's the thing. Pittsburgh, what did you have there for him? Hall of Fame quarterback, Hall of Fame head coach, a staff that's been together a long time, kind of a culture and identity that's already been built. And in New York Jets, he's, he's part of building the new culture and the new identity which really didn't even get off the runway with the injuries and the different things that happened early in the season. So I definitely think he's frustrated, but I have a lot of respect and a lot of admiration for a guy that, you know, was possibly possibility of on the line to being a hall of famer type of player to be able to hold his tongue, to be able to only talk positively about the team. And if he was doing anything other than that, we'll be killing him right now. So I think a lot of respect has to go to him. I heard people talking about you need to trade him. He's not a good player in this in this offense. I would say see what happens next year. You know, I understand the offseason trades and all that stuff. And, 
you know, you never know. He may figure, eh, I don't want to be here. But he's said all the right things. I think he's come out every game. And as I watch him, he's playing hard. He's running hard. He's not tucking it and t- tucking it in for the, for the season. You know, he's out there doing what he has to do to try to be a productive player and to help that running back group and help Sam Darnold be a better player. So a lot of respect goes out to Lev Bell. I think he's been playing hard. He just hasn't got going. And a lot of that has to do with your offensive line, where if you can't get up to that second level, man, the linebackers are initially, they're too quick, and they're on you now. I want to circle back to the penalties. You're somebody that has played at a high level both in high school and college and, of course, in the pros for a long time. How much do you put the penalties on the coaching? How much do you put it on the players? Is it a mix of both, or do you think that it just shows a lack of discipline that the coaching staff needs to get under control? I think, I, you know, I, I'm a guy, listen, I'm not going to lie to you. Up in the CFL, I had a couple years where I had a ton of penalties. And I don't never put that on the coaching staff. I think there's two types of penalties. There's pre-snap, post-snap penalties. Those may be a little bit more on the focus part, of it, especially the pre-snap, an offside, uh, wrong formation, misaligned, where it may cause a penalty on the offense. Post-snap penalties, you can have too many of those, too many, you know, roughing the passer, you know, punching somebody out, maybe jawing a little bit with alignment. They were all in-play penalties. What is a coaching staff supposed to do about a holding or about a block in the back? You know, I, I don't think Adam Gaze says, hey, guys, you know, go hold him. Go block in the back. And then, you know, go go hold him in the end zone for a safety. You know, block him in the back on a big play to be, called, to be called back. So he's not telling them to do that. He's not accepting that. But these are professional players, and they have to hold themselves to a higher standard. And some of the times you look at them, the holding on the safety as a defensive lineman, I loved it. But as you look at it, you're like, ah, I've seen that. I've seen that, you know, that play go uncalled. But what do we see a lot when you're a team that's not having success? That you're, let's say, man, they're not a, they're not a, a competitive team in a game like this. The refs aren't going to help you out. The refs aren't going to give you any call. They're going to call the game like, hey, man, you're not playing well. We're calling everything. Now, you know, I, I've watched. To give you an example, Darrell Revis. I mean, one of the greatest cornerbacks. It's not the greatest cornerback they ever put on a football helmet. I, I've watched them playing games. You're like, oh man, that's kind of a. It looked like he held him a little bit. Reeve, that was P.I. But they know Reeve was a great player. He was going to the number one receiver, and they normally, what did the ref normally do? All right, let him play. You're the number one receiver. You're the number one quarterback. Let him play. In this game, when you're an offensive line that's been struggling the whole year, protecting your quarterback, and the refs see that you're trying everything to make the block, they're not going to bail you out. They're going to call. They're going to give the flag if they see it, and they're not going to help out a bad team. Hey, guys. Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before, and I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Jamal, I want to talk about the Jets and the Dolphins because that's the rematch that's coming up this Sunday, but it's not in sunny Miami this time. It's here in New Jersey, so if you want to go see the Jets and the Dolphins and you don't have your tickets yet, you want to get good tickets at a good price, go ahead and download the Vivid Seats mobile app right now and use the promo code OVERTIME at checkout. You'll get yourself up to 100 bucks off 
on your very first purchase. You can go to that Jets-Dolphins game, or you can go to something else. If you want, you can go to a wrestling match. You can go to a boxing match. You can go to a concert, a hockey game, a basketball game, anything you want. Whatever it is you want to go to, just download the Vivid Seats mobile app, use the promo code OVERTIME, and you will get yourself up to 100 bucks off on your very first purchase. Jamal, in the years that you were with the Jets, it was an interesting up and down because you split with Miami in 2010 and 2011, but in 2009, which is the year that you went 9-7 and seven and ended up going to the AFC Championship game, you ended up losing to the Dolphins twice that year, and one of those, I remember, was a game that Darrell Revis uncharacteristically got burned by Ted Ginn. That was an all-time great season for him, but Ted Ginn was the one black mark on his resume that year. In 2009 especially, after having lost the first game to the Dolphins, how much pressure did you guys feel having to try and go and win that second game to avoid the sweep? Because the Dolphins are different when it comes to teams the Jets play. I know the Patriots are a rival, but the Patriots have been so dominant for so long. There's not that kind of animosity with the Bills, but there's so much animosity between the Jets and the Dolphins. How much pressure did you feel the week of that second game to try and make sure that you didn't get swept? You know what? I'm going to bail Revis out right there. I don't, that's not Revis' fault, that game. Westoff should have cut all us, cut, cut all of that game. I think Ted Ginn had two kickoff returns for touchdown. I think Jason Taylor might have had a, a pick or a fumble for touchdown mm. for a touchdown. We lost the game, and I don't think their, their offense scored a touchdown. So I won't put that on Reed if I'm thinking about the same, uh, the same year. But playing the Dolphins, playing any team in your division is always interesting because they say it's a game, of a, a game and a half. Most of these players, you know, they played each other once. They're going to play them again. So you kind of have the feel of what they're going to do, you know. And, you know, Adam Gates, like we said, he was there. So he knows some of these players. Some of these players were down in Miami and vice versa. I don't think there's a pressure to not get swept. I mean, I don't think the Jets and their players and their staff are thinking, hey, we can't get swept by the Dolphins. I think it's more we have to come out and play a competitive game. We have to come out and play a clean game. We have to come out and get a win. So I don't think you think about, hey, we get, if, 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 if we get swept, it's going to look worse. Because if you don't come out and you don't have a complete focus on this game right now, it doesn't matter what, what Fitzmagic did a couple of weeks ago. It's about this game this weekend. And so if you don't come out with that focus, you know that the papers are going to light up. Your Twitter is going to go ham. Instagram is going to kill you. Everybody's going to be on your head because you got the loss. So I think you're, they're not going to let that first loss compile into a second loss with their mindset. It has to be more of a focus on we have to come out and do what we did previously against the Raiders in our previously games that we won what why was the reason that we won and can we replicate that against the Dolphins and what they do schematically just to clarify Ted Ginn did burn Darrell Revis for a 53-yard touchdown pass against the Dolphins in 2009 that was in the first meeting in Miami did, did, did Ted Ginn have two kickoff returns for touchdown yeah he did that too that was in the rematch at the old Giants stadium yeah, so I, look, I'm raising my hand right now. You can't see me. I'm in the office at home. <laughs> I have my hand up in the air. <laughs> and I'm saying, listen, I was part of that kickoff unit. And we that game, I saw that Ted Ginn speed, and it is for real. That's the one thing I always said about Ted Ginn, that I thought it was a little bit high for the Dolphins to pick him where they did. They picked him in the top 10, and a lot of people criticized them for passing on Brady Quinn at the time. But what I said was, 
if the Dolphins utilized him properly, that speed was absolutely deadly, and you saw it up close. And it's funny, too, because even though Ted Ginn never turned into the superstar wide receiver that people were hoping for, he certainly had a much longer and better career than Brady Quinn, right? <laughs> oh, man, he's still eating. He's still doing his thing. Like, see, that's the thing. Speed, speed, speed. Mm-hmm. You can't do anything with it, man. And when you have that speed, I mean, he probably still go out there and lace him up and put up a 4-4. So, I mean, with that speed, it's unstoppable. I mean, he's still doing it at a – you can't teach speed. Man, I wish I was a little faster. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be plenty of speed on display Sunday between the Jets and the Dolphins. What do you expect to see happen here? You think the Jets can get back on the right side of the win column? And do you think that they're going to be able to change the game plan from the first game? Because the first time they played, it just seemed like nothing went right. Darnold made mistakes the defense was getting eaten alive by Ryan Fitzpatrick. The offense couldn't adjust. What do you think Adam Gase and Greg Williams can do differently? And do you think that they're going to be able to find a way to get past the Dolphins on Sunday? I think they have to come out and have to play with uh, an intensity similar to what we've seen Miami play, but even in losing situations, even in the season in Miami, which we, we felt that was not going to be a successful season. We, we kind of saw the, the trades they made and some of the moves they made in free agency and trading some guys away that we, ah, they weren't going to play us. But every week they came out and they played. They, they seemed like they are playing with a lot of passion, a lot of fire, and they're playing more and harder than what their records would indicate. So I think they have to come out. And I, I wouldn't say – you never want to say go match their intensity, but I think they have to understand that Miami, they're coming up here and, you know, that – that record that you think they have, you know, they're not coming up there with that. They're coming up here with, with brass knuckles for a fight because they want to get a win in New York and they want to taste that victory and that feeling again. So come out with that intensity, match their intensity, and let's hope we have Jamal Adams back. And I think that's a key where if he's out for a, a longer period of time, that's going to be difficult to kind of manufacture his production because not only has he been a disruptive factor, but over these, this winter he's been, I mean, uber, as you know, uber productive. So that's the thing. And on offense, I want to see him run the ball, man. Run the rock. I, I, listen, man, in these games where it's divisional game, it's the physical game, let your men know, like, listen, man, last time we got beat, we got beat a little bit physical, physically. Can we go out? Can we run the ball? Can we get our – great running back going can we protect our quarterback and the one thing the offensive line and i give them credit where credit is due they seem to have fixed the miscommunication issues where you don't really have free runners just running clean at the quarterback now it's time for them to step up and win their one-on-one battles in the trenches on the edge and also in the middle of that offensive line how different is it playing at home as opposed to on the road because they lost the first one to the Miami Dolphins in Miami. They're now back home oh, Miami. playing the Miami Dolphins at home at MetLife Stadium. And the Jets are 1-5 this year on the road. And I looked it up, Jamal. The last time that the Jets had a winning record on the road, you were still on the team. It was the 2010 season. <laughs> and the Jets won eight road games, including the two playoff games. How different is road it Warriors. playing on the road and playing at home? And do you think that's the hallmark of a good team? that a good team is able to beat teams on the road, even if they're not great teams, even if they're just beating poor and mediocre teams, that they're able to take care of business on the road and not just at home? I think, you know, a good team, you have to be able to win everywhere. You have to have an offense and a defense that can travel on the road, at home. The difference for me, 
I I actually enjoy playing on the road. I enjoy seeing the other stadiums because I'm a defender. So when I'm on the field, on the road, it's quiet. I can communicate. Hey, check, check, check. Tight ends coming over. Let's run a T game. Let's run a text game. Everybody can hear me on defense. I can communicate to my big D tackle in the middle. At home, when you're on defense, the crowd is you know, a little bit noisier. You know, their, their offense is moving a little quicker because they understand that, all right, you know, we don't want their crowd to get into it. So they kind of adjust what they're doing. So I, I, you know, I, I enjoy playing on the road. You know, I enjoyed, you know, playing in Miami. I enjoyed playing, you know, just a, away from the stadium because there is a, a, a different level of focus you have on the road because it is just you and the guys that you brought on the trip with you all focus on one goal and it's to leave. There's nothing better than getting a win in somebody else's house. Cause you have to see the fans' faces, and they're down. They're still cursing you out, and after you kick that ass, they look at you, and they're still cursing you out. You respect it, but you know that you got yours this game. So playing on the road is definitely a. Uh, I've always enjoyed it. I've always enjoyed that pageantry of just the NFL stadiums and the different fan bases. But playing on the road for players that were not starting last week, that coming off the P squad, coming off the injured reserve, you know, guys that were maybe backing up. Now you're on the road. You know, you're the guy now, and you have more family members hitting you. Hey, I'm trying to get tickets to the game. I want to, you know, I want to come to the game. You're down in Miami. You want to? I'll come to the game. So you're worrying about a lot of different, a lot of different things on the road. Where at home, it's a routine, right? You're gonna get the same food you've been getting on every home game. You're sleeping in the same hotel room, hopefully that you've been sleeping on in every home game. You know, the meetings are the same places, and you get that familiar, you know, that familiar feeling of yeah, this is my stand. This is this is my life. This is my locker room. You know, I know where everything is. On the road, things change. You have some places on the road. I got coaching staff, you know, mic in the room and try to listen out for bugs to see how they're spying on us. So on the road is different, but home is always better, but I enjoy the road. Jamal, last thing before we go, I want to do story time with Jamal. And since we talked about Mike Westhoff and we all know what a character he was, do you have any fun Mike Westhoff stories to end the show this week? Well, since we're talking special teams a lot, this uh, this this cast, I, Ted Ginn did have it was a game at home. He had six returns, two hundred and ninety nine yards, two touchdowns. So I <laughs> hand raised again, and I give you I give you a West off story. I give you my first meeting in the NFL after I made the team my rookie year. So you know, made the team my rookie year. Didn't really think personally it was a a huge accomplishment because I was kind of locked in. I just assumed that, yeah, I'm just going to play hard, hard as hell until they tell me to go home. I ended up making a team, and, you know, guys are congratulating me. I'm feeling good. Next step is I have to find an apartment. I was still living down at Rutgers off of Lewis Street, so I have to find an apartment in, in that area. I looked at an apartment in Cedar Knoll. Get the apartment. cool. I was there, you know, one day, had, pra- had practice the next day. First meeting in the morning, 745 West Off special teams meeting. I'm good. Set my phone alarm, plug it in, sleeping on the air mattress, doesn't have any furniture. That first check didn't cash yet. That first check did not go through. I was pissed. But <laughs> sleeping on the air, <laughs> air on the blow up bed. Wake up in the morning, sun's out. I'm man, I'm gonna have a great day of practice today. Playing the Houston Texans, man. I'm excited. I'm ready to go. I'm like, man, my phone, I woke up before the phone alarm, man. This is dope. I'm ready to roll. Look at the phone, it's dead. I guess this, these new apartments, they, the light switch turns off the actual outlet. So where I plug my phone in, turns it off, phone dead. I finally look at a watch. It's like 7.35. I had 10 minutes to drive, about 10 minutes. It took me 10 minutes to get to this facility. Not going to lie, man, I was flying. I was 
Because I'm thinking, all right, all right I'm, I'm going to cut. I'm going to get cut. I'm going to walk in the building, and they're going to cut me and send me home. I get to the meeting room, Westoff meeting, after running through the hallways about a minute late. Westoff comes in. My man, where were you? Da, 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 da. What were you doing? This is the NFL. You have to be on time. You think they're drawing up any plays for you on defense? You got to make it happen in my room. And I'm, oh, shit. Westoff is cut. Westoff is going to cut me after this meeting. As soon as the meeting, and he said, my man, what happened? Uh, with my phone, I don't know the phone. I'm stuttering. The phone plugged in. You're like, my man, you got it, my man. You know what to do. You're a good guy. Just, you know, just show up on time, man, my man. And I'm thinking, man, the whole camp, Westoff was a total asshole to me. I mean, he was riding us. He was on us the whole camp. And just in that moment, he saw, like, I was totally flustered of what just happened. And I really wanted to be the guy that was always doing the right thing, that was always on time, especially being my first meet. So he kind of calmed me down, like, you got it, my man. Just, you know, just focus a little bit. So that's the Westoff story. I mean, Westoff is one of the toughest, I think, special teams coaches and maybe coaches I've ever played for, you know, especially that, that was my first job when I was at, you know, the Jets with special team. But he taught me a lot. I mean, he would, and he had the most tremendous stories about do- sheep herding dogs in Australia and <laughs> the fighting men of Mongolia. I mean, Westoff, if you ever have a chance to sit down and just listen to him talk, I mean, the amount of stories he has about sacrifice and about accountability and about just building together, I mean, it's amazing. So definitely a lot of respect to him and, I'm so happy he didn't cut me after that first meeting. <laughs> I guess he realized that it was an honest mistake and he had gotten to know you over training camp. And so that's part of why he was riding you so much is because he saw something in you. Man, let's hope it was, man, because Westall, man, he's tough. <laughs> you want, if you look back at that hard knock, look back at hard knock, man. Westall, when we cut me on the day off that Rex told me I had to take, hey, man, you did a lot of things in the offseason. All you guys are taking the day off today. I'm like, man, Westoff's not going to be okay with this, and he wasn't. (laughs) The best line that I ever heard Westoff say, I didn't actually hear him say it. It was something that was in the book Collision Low Crossers by Nicholas Dowadoff. He said of your former teammate Vernon Golston, this is a guy whose instincts are so slow that if he burned his hand on a stove today, he would yell, ouch, tomorrow. And that line still comes Ah, up. Listen, man, that's the one thing. Vern don't burn, man. Vern is built out of rock, so Vern won't burn. But yeah, man, Westoff. I mean, those those quotes, and those stories, legendary. I want to hear a book with just Westoff quotes. I'm telling you, Jamal. I've said many times. I have a list of dream guests that I want on the show. One of them is Rich Kotite because he seems to have disappeared and I really want to get him on the show because he just doesn't do interviews. I'd love to talk to Eric Mangini about how he built up the team. He's another one. Terry Bradway. I love Terry, man. It's one of the first guys I met when I came when I came out of Rutgers and I we stayed in contact. Terry's a great dude. Tell him to come on the show because he was with the Jets for like 15 years. I can't even imagine the stories he's got. But Westhoff is one of the guys that's high on my list too because as you said, Jamal, my game plan interviewing Westhoff would just be to say a word or two and then let Westhoff talk. <laughs> you, you, gotta get a, you know what you got to do, man? You got to rent you a boat, go down to Florida. You catch him on the boat. Oh, that's what he loves, man, getting on the boat and just getting on that water. So maybe you, you got to go to Florida we have an in-person pod with, with Westoff on a boat somewhere down in Key West or North Florida. I don't know where he likes to get out, but we'll have an in-person pod with Westy. 
I like it. I'm going to go out and get my fishing gear tomorrow. And plus, it's cold here, so I have no problems going out to Florida right now, believe me. Jamal, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Sorry things didn't work out with the Grey Cup, but you'll get them next year. But I am happy for you that things are working out for Rutgers because I think Greg Schiano is going to do some great things for that program. For anybody that wants to talk to you about the Jets, about Rutgers, about fishing with Mike Westhoff, where can they get a hold of you? <laughs> Man, I've been loving this pie. I mean, guys, uh, people are fans of DM me questions about the Jazz, asking my insight. They can, you know, hit me on Instagram, jwesterman90, Instagram, uh, Twitter, jwesterman90, or just Jamal Westerman. You know, they can find me on all social media platforms. And I enjoy talking football this season, even though my season, actual playing season, is, is finished. But, man, the NFL this year, man, has been crazy. We've seen, you know, creative and dynamic offenses especially with what Lamar Jackson is doing. So it's been fun just talking football and talking to some of the, you know, the, the, the loyal Jet fans. Looking forward to having you back on the show next week. Hopefully things go better for the Jets against the Dolphins than they did against the Bengals. Fingers crossed for that. In the meantime, go ahead and follow Jamal on Twitter. Don't forget, it's J-A-M-A-A-L, two A's in the there middle. There we go. And you know why there's two A's? Because Jamal likes know. the number two. And the reason he likes the number two is because he sacked Tom Brady not once, but twice in a single game back in 2011. So make sure when you're following him on Twitter or on Instagram, you type J-A-M-A-A-L to get Jamal Westerman on social media. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcast, you know where to go. Let's turn on the Jets digital and turn on the Jets.com.